<laughs> so I hope you were all noting that you have joy in your minds. Because <laughs> it's pretty easy to make you laugh this evening. That's an excellent sign of the enlightenment factor of joy in your mind. It's really good to see that and soak it up with your mindfulness. Well, anyway, tonight I want to talk about the big picture. The big picture, I want to talk about the Eightfold Path. The Eightfold Path of the Buddha. So I'd like to start off with this uh, quote by Ajahn Chah. Ajahn Chah says, This path consists of virtue, concentration, and wisdom, the framework for training the heart. Their true meaning is not to be found in these words, but dwells in the depth of our hearts. However, if the factors of the eightfold path are weak and timid, the defilements will possess our minds. If maga, maga, the path is strong and courageous, it will conquer and destroy the defilements. If, if it's the defilements that are powerful and brave, while the path is feeble and frail, the defilements conquer our hearts. As Dhamma practice develops in the heart, these two forces have to battle it out at every step of the way. It's like there are two people arguing inside the mind, but it's just the path of Dhamma and the defilement struggling to win domination of the heart. As long as we are able to see clearly, the defilements will be losing ground. But if we are shaky, whenever defilements regroup and regain their strength, the path will be routed as defilements take its place. The two sides will continue to fight it out until eventually there is a victor and the whole affair is settled. Pretty straightforward. I usually, um, boy, I'm really sweating, but I usually like to read that uh, that little story about the Cherokee grandfather. You probably heard that one, which is the exact same story. You've heard, all heard it, right? No. Okay, I'm going to read it. <laughs> it's essentially the very same story. An old Cherokee grandfather is teaching his grandson about life. He says to his grandson, A fight is going on inside me, he said to the boy. It is a terrible fight, and it is between two wolves. One is evil. He, she, they has anger, envy, sorrow, regret, greed, arrogance, self-pity, guilt, resentment, lies, false pride, and ego. He continues, The other is good. He has wisdom, joy, peace, patience. Serenity, determination, humility, kindness, generosity, truth, compassion. And the grandfather says, and the same fight is going inside of you, too. It's going on inside of every person. The grandson thought for a minute, and then he asked his grandfather, which wolf will win? And the old Cherokee simply replied, the one you feed. So I think many of us who um, have been practicing the Dharma, we understand this. We understand that 
the Eightfold Path itself is is uh, the development of um, forces, energies. You know, I I've seen a glimpse of and know that it's true that you know we don't exist the way that um, our deluded mind thinks that we exist. So it has to be that these there are these forces out there, right? There are these forces that exist within us that have a potential to be weak or strong. And with this practice, what we're doing is we are strengthening these, strengthening maga, strengthening the path factors for them to win out and lead us to awakening. Gil Fransdahl talks about the analogy or the allegory of the path. Why is it a path? You know, why is this a path of awakening? And he talks about that it's essentially a potential that we all have. We can walk the path, but we're clearing the path while we're walking it. We're clearing the path. And uh, it's these eight path factors that are actually doing the work of clearing the path to the um, destination of awakening or freedom of liberation. And that the path exists only in our engagement with it. It's not there um, otherwise. I mean, the path is well laid out by the Buddha, but from where any one of us is standing, it's our own clearing that we need to do towards that destination. So the path only exists in our engagement with it. So, um, one way to think about, of course, the Eightfold Path is as three related, bigger, uh, energetic fields or path factors, and that's Sila, Samadhi, Panya. Sila is um, an external manifestation of right conduct in the world, right conduct by uh, body, speech, and mind, what we actually enact in the world. It's kind of an outward-focused manifestation of, uh, you know, um, of our wisdom and compassion in the world. Sila. And then samadhi is technically translated as concentration, but it's really not concentration. It's an inward focus. It's clearing and cultivating inwardly. Uh, the same way that we do outwardly with the uh, sila factors. And then panya is both, has to be the beginning of the path and the end of the path. And of course we know that panya, uh, the wisdom path factors are right view, and actually, uh, during writing this talk today and yesterday, you know, the second path factor, right thought, can be translated as either right thought and right intention. And I've just so decided that it is right intention, right? Isn't it right intention? You know, uh, intention is one of those universal uh, mental qualities 
there's always an intention for every act that we do. It's present with every act. And um, when I'm doing intensive practice, and actually I've even found here, uh, I love looking for the intention to act, the intention to act. And actually that will be one of your instructions as we go down, as we um, give instructions in the 815th sit, is you can see intention arise before any act that you do. Sometimes it could be like two days before you do something, or, and it could also be right before you do something. So it's interesting the timing of it. So right view and right intention are the wisdom path factors, panya. Right speech, right action, and right livelihood are the um, um, samadhi. No, there are the... Sila, sila path factors, sila path factors. Right speech, right action, and right livelihood. Sila are actions in the world. And then right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration are the, um, are the inward focused, right concentration or sila samadhi, samadhi factors of the Eightfold Path. So the first one, right view. And it's so important. It, I don't want to say it's the most important one. You can't say that, right? You can't say that right view is the most important one. But um, I think that that's one of the biggest focuses of Ajahn um, Saida Utejaniya's teaching is the focus on right view. So what is right view? So classically, uh, three things can be distinguished as right view. The first is just the um, workings of karma, of what is wholesome action and what is unwholesome action. And then the second element of right view is to understand how the, eight, uh, uh, how the Four Noble Truths are acting in your life at any given time. So it's really the uh, understanding of karma or understanding of wholesome and unwholesome, what really leads to happiness in our lives and what really leads to suffering for ourselves and for others. And then the Four Noble Truths. So one way to think about uh, concentration or uh, um, working with the Four Noble Truths is that it really is the um, primary approach or motivation for engaging on any of the path. You know, first we have to know that we're suffering, right? We have to put down all of our distractions, put down all of the drugs and alcohol, put down all of the department store catalogs. (laughs) For me, I have to drive past the grocery store. (laughs) I have a grocery store fetish. It's hard for me to pass one without stopping. So in order for us to even start on this path, we have to open to what, uh, you know, what the truth of our existence is, what the truth of our life is. And if we want to suffer less, if we open to that and realize that we're suffering, 
uh, or that we want to suffer less, first we have to notice that we are suffering, the first noble truth. Actually, when um, I'm doing interviews with individual yogis and people will come in and just are sobbing and just, oh my gosh, life is so painful which I know very well, I usually say to them, congratulations. (laughs) You're realizing the first noble truth. That's a good thing. I know it's very painful, but, you know, each of the noble truths has a verb associated with it. And the first noble truth, the truth of suffering or dissatisfaction, you know, there's many ways to say it. Uh, The first noble truth, the verb associated with it, is that it has to be known. That uh, dukkha is to be known. And that's what you're doing here. Have you noticed? (laughs) It's a good thing. I know it doesn't seem this way in the moment, but it's definitely priming your, your, uh, your wellness in many ways. And then, once you realize that you're suffering... It's really useful to understand why you're suffering. It's very useful to understand um, the cause of our suffering, which is the second noble truth. Of course, the truth of uh, clinging and attachment and avijja of ignorance. And the verb associated with the second noble truth, the truth of attachment, of tanha, of craving, of clinging. (coughs) of ignorance is that they are to be let go of purified the third noble truth is that peace is possible knowing that we can we can attain freedom even given you know the craziness of our world there is a way to rest in deep deep wellness and a sense of deep, deep contentment, even given just the craziness of the world. So that is the third noble truth, the truth of Nibbana, or awakening, or the sensation of suffering. What is the verb associated with the third noble truth? Realized, right? The third noble truth... Uh, Nibbana, freedom, awakening is to be realized. And then uh, the fourth noble truth. Isn't it interesting how all the Buddhist things are very kind of holographic and melt into each other? Because this is the the, uh, first noble truth. Uh, I mean, the first path factor of right view, and it contains the entire Eightfold Path. Because, of course, the fourth noble truth is uh, the path leading to Nibbana, and that's this, these eight path factors, the development of these eight path, path factors. Just a quick ABA aside here, as in um, attention deficit, which I have a little bit of. Um, you know, the Buddha's, uh, the way he put it together is so like complex systems theory, right? It's not... It's such an advanced intertwining of elements. I mean, it's like complex math theory or something. I just think it's very clever the way he did that. But anyway, so those are, uh, that is right view. 
And I want to read a, a quote about views from one of my uh, favorite online Buddhist commentators. Anybody like Pia Tan? Do you know Pia Tan? Oh my gosh, I'm going to so give you the web link to Pia Tan. <laughs> prolific. 20 years a monk, prolific writer. He does like four or five page succinct analysis of each sutta. Gotta love it. So this is what he says, and he's also kind of jiggy. So, uh, so this is uh, the beginning of an essay he has entitled, All Views Are Wrong Views. An, argument, an argumentative Brahmin, a member of the priestly class in ancient India, approaches the Buddha and tells him, I do not accept everything. I do not accept everything. That is, he has no views. The Buddhist reply is short and exact. That Brahman is a view too. <laughs> That's actually a sutta story. <laughs> Whenever we say something, including writing it or communicating it in any way, we are saying that I am right in saying this. Even when we say I am wrong, we are saying we are right. <laughs> Right? <laughs> One of the most ironic statements we can make is perhaps saying, I am not saying this. <laughs> <laughs> and saying all of this, we are asserting that I am telling the truth. All views are wrong views. So that's the first path factor, right view. And you can see how right view absolutely informs right intention, right? Because it really gets to an understanding of karma, an understanding of wholesome mental factors, wholesome energies that inform outward actions and body, speech, and mind, and inward, you know, thoughts and um, motivations for action, and that's it. That's what we're talking about here, intentions. What are uh, right intentions? And in this uh, Eightfold Path, the second path factor, right intention, the second solid energetic force that we are cultivating in our lives is uh, understood uh, with three dimensions. There's three dimensions of right intention. The first is thoughts of renunciation. But what does that mean? That's kind of a bad word to Westerners, don't you think? Renunciation. It's like, put away that catalog. Somehow depriving us of a little bit of comfort and hard times. But actually... That's why this is a path factor and why it's the wisdom function. Because renunciation, real renunciation, isn't based on, um, you know, isn't based on, isn't based on some type of denial of our needs or anything like that. It's actually based on seeing clearly the nature of conditioned things. Because when we see clearly the nature of conditioned things, Clearly with our mindfulness, just the direct observation of that 10th cup of tea that you got 
or that you know third helping of dessert or whatever it is that uh, we think is somehow giving us some well-being when we can really see clearly that with our mindfulness not conceptual overlay not even telling ourselves you know this is full of calories so this is bad it's not even you know good health education it's seeing clearly with our mindfulness just how uh, bereft of any well-being are in those things. So renunciation is based on insight. Just seeing the the uselessness of a you know forever accumulation, and it's not about you know letting go of those things that we need at all. It's not about that at all, but it's about just us placing our faith in things that are never going to uh, bring us really, you know, real well-being. And then the opposite of that, uh, cultivating generosity. That's the other um, element of this first dimension of right intention. It's to let go of those things that will never bring us well-being or, you know, real... Uh, otherworldly well-being and practicing generosity which is the most beautiful expression of wisdom and interconnectedness the second element oh my gosh I'm on the second one and I'm already 20 minutes, 25 minutes into it i got to hurry up um, <laughs> thoughts of non-harming or loving kindness are the second element of right intention and then uh, thoughts of non-violence or uh, non-harming or compassion are the third element of right intention. And um, that's what we're practicing here. We are noticing, you know, when we have, um, you know, we're extracting the wisdom to be able to have a sincere intention. When we see the wisdom of um, accumulation or renunciation of non-harming and non-violence, that strengthens right intention in us. And it's not, you know, it can be a conceptual thing. It's useful, you know, study and uh, contemplation on these as conceptual things are excellent. But you've all felt, probably even during this practice, what, you know, renunciation feels like when it's based on wisdom. Like, oh, I just don't need that. Or when what generosity feels like when it's just a force in the atmosphere and you just want to, you know, give to others. And uh, what compassion feels like, opening to other suffering and just having that arise as the natural response to being aware of what's going on in the environment and in, in our own hearts and minds. So that's the second path factor. Right view informs right intention. And those two... Wisdom factors, those two wisdom factors set the stage for the next three factors which are based on right action in the world, on sila. And those, of course, are right speech, right action, and right livelihood. And those three, uh, those two wisdom factors uh, set the groundwork for us or the foundation for us to engage in uh, uh, these three path factors and to really increase their strength and water them. We water them with the wisdom that we have from the first two path factors. And of course, uh, right speech. Uh, this is my. This is what I am working on right now. 
I've got to make more time to work on it. <laughs> uh, and uh, I can tell because uh, teachers have been telling me for a long time, Bonnie, you need to work on right speech. And uh, even a dear friend recently said, hey, do you have a talk on right speech? <laughs> I just went, wow, I really need to do some more work on right speech. So I love it. That's what good friends do, you know. They tell you that kind of stuff. So we know that right speech, there's four elements of it. Most of you probably know. The first one is just don't lie. Just don't lie. And then the second is to uh, not engage in malicious speech. And I think I just need to have more mindfulness. Personally, I'm just going to fess up. I think I need to have more mindfulness about what is truth-telling and what is malicious speech. Because I think sometimes there could be kind of a fine line there. I need to really pay more attention to that. Abstinence from harsh, harsh, harsh speech. And um, I think that's an excellent one too. You know, not yelling and not having our speech filled with anger and resentment and haughtiness or entitlement or privilege. You know, things that we all have. And then abstinence from idle chatter, which is an interesting one. Personally, I'm at the point where I'm not, I don't really appreciate that much idle chatter. Many of you might have, feel the same way. I have this uh, one nun friend, and I asked her, why did you become a nun? She said, because I just didn't want people talking to me about, you know, useless stuff. <laughs> When you think about it, that's not a bad reason to become a nun. <laughs> Maybe you could just get a button. Please don't talk about it. No idle chatter here. <laughs> so that's uh, the dimensions of uh, right speech, or the things that you shouldn't do. And I think we all know the things that we should do. It's brilliant. The Buddha's uh, you know, uh, advice or prescriptions for right speech are so beautiful. Speak what is true, but also speak what is timely. I love that. It's like, when will someone be able to hear something that you want to say? It's such a, a conceptual innovation over just be truthful. Because uh, you could say something that's true, or, and then actually the next one is, is it useful? You, can all, you, know, you could probably say a lot of things that are true, but would they be useful in a particular moment? And would they be timely? I think those are really innovations over just don't lie. So that's right speech. The second, uh, no, the first sila path factor. And then the fourth, uh, the fourth path factor, the fourth energetic field that we are building in this heart-mind is right action. And we can see again that uh, right view and right intention absolutely informs how we engage with right action. And again, right action is right view and right intention applied to what we're doing outwardly in the world, just as right speeches. 
And of course, the first one is uh, to refrain. It's actually three of the five precepts that we engage with. It is to abstain from taking life. To abstain from killing. That's interesting because... For me, particularly because I work with uh, tribes of the Pacific Northwest... And they have uh, taken back their uh, uh, sovereign fishing rights, thanks to Billy Frank, yay, Billy Frank. And they actually engage, and they will do a week-long ceremony before they engage in the fishing season in order to call out their salmon relatives. It's so beautiful. Like, oh, we're going to come and visit you. We need some of you for food. You know, they have a very elaborate ceremony of how they engage their relatives in the water, the finned ones. And they spend millions of their gaming funds to restore uh, salmon runs. Millions of dollars for environmental restoration. Millions of dollars. More than the state governments of Washington, Oregon combined. So... You know, one thing about all of the path factors is there, you know, maybe in line with what Pietan says about no view, uh, uh, all views are wrong views, is that we cannot apply something across the board. Personally, not killing, you know, it's pretty straightforward from my perspective, but I'll, I'll eat some smoked salmon. Maybe it's something I'm still working with. I guess it's, you know, there's no pat or um, easy way for us to interpret any of these. It really comes down to this moment. What is happening in this moment? And what is my intention in this action? So, of course, the first one is uh, uh, not to kill anything or be the cause of anything to be killed. The second, of course, is to not take what is not offered or not to steal. And, you know, that one is pretty straightforward, too. Don't steal anything. But it can also get a lot more subtle. I mean, when you think about, you know, sometimes where we shop and, you know, what people are getting paid to live. And, you know, sometimes I feel like I'm, a, I'm stealing people's living wage somehow. You know, I have those thoughts. That I'm stealing people's labor in a way that I just want to be more respectful of. So, uh, not to take what is not offered. You know, don't borrow anything that belongs to others without letting them know. Just be really... And it's so interesting, the most enlightened people are so meticulous about these precepts. They are the most meticulous people about it. It's so beautiful to see. And then, of course... um, the third dimension of right action is to abstain from sexual misconduct. And that is definitely can be a complicated one. You know, what does that look like? What is sexual misconduct? You know, it's, it's definitely um, founded on non-exploitation. So these... Um, these um, right action 
is also it's the second sila, uh, the fourth the fourth path factor, and the second sila factor. And then there's right livelihood, and I was really enjoyed reading about right livelihood because it's actually a little bit more um, a little bit more instructive than I thought it would be because you know historically the interpretation of right livelihood is not to engage. There's five. Um, five um, professions that you're not supposed to engage in. I think it's, um, you're not supposed to engage in, uh, um, you can't sell weapons, you can't be in the meat industry, you can't sell poisons. I think drugs and alcohol are uh, part of that. You know, there's certain uh, admonitions about what not to do. You know, the uh, instruction is to avoid, avoid negative or wrong livelihood, to, to um, avoid wrong livelihood. But um, right livelihood also asks the questions. And since livelihood is a huge, uh, a huge part of how we spend a lot of our time, it's a huge part of it. It asks us to ask questions like, do we enjoy our work? And, uh, you know, are we, um, you know, harming? Are we doing any harming? Are we stealing in our work? Are we doing any harm in the work that we do and that we support? And is it nourishing us? Is it spiritually and actually even monetarily? You know, the Buddha talked a fair amount about money for uh, for householders. And uh, is it... uh, is it money that's freely given? Is it, uh, you know, ethical? Is it ethical work? I love the thought that we could explore that more deeply. Just even simply, do we like what we're doing? Do we like what we're doing? So that's right livelihood. Oh, here it is. You should not uh, trade in weapons, living beings, meat, intoxicants, or poisons. That's the admonition in the sutta about a wrong livelihood. These five trades should not be taken up. But, you know, we can ask more directly, what are the purposes of our work? What values are expressed in the work that we do? What are the values? What consequence does our work have on the quality of our inner life and our outer life? And what consequences does it have for the world? Does our work, which takes up a lot of our thoughts and actions, is it part of our path of liberation? Is it cutting down greed, hatred, and delusion and supporting positive qualities? And I love this. Is there joy and ease in our work? Is there joy in our work? That's a legitimate, that's part of the path. We're supposed to be asking that. We are supposed to be asking, is there joy and ease in our work? That's not like, oh yeah, maybe if you're lucky. That's part of the path. Right effort is the um, beginning actually of the uh, samadhi path factors. And you can see how uh, sila informs the beginning of the uh, so those are out, outward actions, right? Out, outward correct actions based on 
uh, actions of body, speech, and mind that are based on positive qualities and uh, you know not based on greed, hatred, and delusion. And we all know from meditating, you know, some of you have said in the interviews, it's so beautiful, I'd love to hear it, how you've actually had uh, memories of, of things that you've done that you're not very proud of. And uh, that's what happens when you engage in a lot of uh, unwholesome activity is that it will, it really disturbs the mind. You know, that's the reason to engage in, in sila because it actually is the foundation and the condition for calm and insight in the mind. Sila conditions our inner experience. Outward sila conditions our in, inner experience. And it's good, you know, it's good when we remember things that we've done and feel the pain of that directly with our mindfulness. Well, that was painful. You know, and this is my, my karmic fruit of that is just agitation and regret and sorrow in this moment, which of course will pass, but, you know, that's the fruit of that. So right effort is the beginning of the um, mental inner development path factors. It's a force in our lives, and we can feel this. People talk, it, uh, people talk about it in meditation and on retreat as a feeling of momentum. I love that feeling of momentum of like things are just happening on their own. You don't have to try to, you know, start again, start again, because there's this flow of energy and effort in the process. It's just so beautiful. And of course we know that uh, there are four different ways to apply right effort. That is to prevent harmful things from arising, to try to prevent harmful things from arising, to um, let go or overcome harmful things that have already arisen, to arouse, to arouse wholesome thoughts to arise, to do, uh, to make effort for wholesome uh, mental qualities and heart qualities to arise. And then when wholesome heart and mental qualities have arisen, to uh, maintain them and to keep them going. And we can, um, you know, there, uh, we've all been working a lot with effort because of just different instructions that we've gotten from some of our root teachers. You know, one school of our wonderful, you know, one grandparent... <laughs> One grandparent monastery of our wonderful Theravada traditionals say, try harder, try harder, you're not trying hard enough. More mindfulness, more mindfulness. Be more diligent. Apamada, be an apamada vihari. A diligent practitioner. And another, another wonderful um, monastic relative will say, oh, you need to relax. <laughs> You need to relax. And my teacher, Joseph Goldstein, says that he says that his entire practice has been about balancing effort. Not too hard, not too loose. Just, you know, that's one manifestation of the middle way. And effort, you know, we can either have heroic effort, and sometimes we need heroic effort, and sometimes we need a very light touch. 
And hopefully wisdom will arise to tell us what is needed in that moment. It won't be us, you know, with a lot of confusion and uh, greed, hatred, and delusion determining what our effort level is. But rather just wisdom and forming effort in the moment. And it's really beautiful to see that. It's important to see that momentum in the effort and wisdom tempering what effort is. So we can be too aggressive and we can also be too hesitant. You know, one way, one thing to look at, are we being too aggressive or too hesitant? We can also be, uh, one element that can impact our effort is we can be too self-aggrandizing, just too puffed up, like, oh yeah, I can do this. Or too self-deprecating also has an impact on our effort. I remember once um, I was doing the three-month retreat at IMS and I was a bell ringer for one of the sits and I was walking around the facility ringing the bell and in my mind, you know, I was giving metta to everybody but in my mind I was screaming the metta phrases and it was like I was kind of freaking myself out and I went, and I went and told Joseph, I said, man, I think that I need to balance some effort. And he said, and I said, he said, why? What's happening? And I told him that. He goes, oh, yeah, you need to go take a walk. <laughs> so it's, you know, important for us to really keep an eye on that. That's one of the most important, I guess, all of these things. You know, uh, when wisdom arises, wisdom is tempering and looking at all of these things. And then the Buddha also taught that there's a way to actually um, to water the seeds of right effort. There's a way to water the seeds. And that's actually to reflect on our refuges and on what right effort, what refuges right effort actually gives us. And this is something that I am just loving more and more. I have a very, people might say it's an inappropriate saying, but I'm going to say it. Should I say it? Patrice is rolling her eyes at me. I'm going to say it. The Buddha is my boyfriend. <laughs> and I say that with, you know, with an understanding that it might be a little bit disrespectful, but, you know, I just really love, uh, you know, I actually visualize the Buddha a lot and just, I have a lot of awe. I have a lot of faith and confidence and actually visualizing the Buddha really kicks up my faith and confidence, which is really an excellent foundation for effort, for uh, tweaking effort. You're smiling at me like, really, is the Buddha your boyfriend? Well, I want you to know that I'm newly engaged, or pretty newly engaged. And I think having the Buddha be my boyfriend takes a lot of pressure off my fiancé. <laughs> think about it, you know, I mean... What that means is, doesn't, you know, I know that the Buddha's not my boyfriend, but um, it just, you know, it makes me realize that, you know, the ultimate wisdom is not to be found in somebody else, and that the truth of existence, you know, our interconnectedness, the suffering of conditioned experience, and the impermanence of everything when I know that, you know, that wisdom also is in me, you know, the Buddha is here too, right? 
that uh, I don't look externally for someone to solve my problems or someone to always have the right answer. You know, that's taking a lot of pressure off of people. And then the Dharma. Uh, the um, path tells us in order to also water the seeds of right effort is to reflect on the Dharma, just how profound it is, how it's both the teachings of the Buddha that, you know, we all as individuals are so welcome to read and interpret for ourselves. You know, we love that our Burmese and Thai relatives gave us one interpretation, but hey, we're here, right here, right now. What does it mean on this land? What does it mean for this day? And, you know, we're invited to do that. The Buddha said, don't believe me, practice this for yourself. Realize this yourself. So the Dharma, and then of course the Sangha. It's just such a, brings out the best in us. All of, you know, many of you have said, just being in the Sangha, the energetic field, I think, is reducing our ego clinging, and that we're touching into our, you know, our sense of self is weakening to be in this field. And we just feel held by this love. That it's, you know, not us individually. It's just realizing the truth of our interconnectedness. You know, my analogy now that I love is of an aspen grove. An aspen grove has all of these individual trees that are different sizes and shapes and have different branch structures, different ages. And no one says, oh, that aspen aspen." tree is bad, it's too short, it's too fat, (laughs) you know, everybody appreciates a tree for how it's manifesting. And if you look underneath all of those trees, you see that there's one root system, one root system. And I think when we feel the love of this energetic field of the Sangha, that's what we're feeling. We are reducing our you know, individual ego clinging and feeling the truth of that, being held by the truth of that. So that's right effort. Uh, The second, seventh path factor, this energy, this energy, energetic feel that we are watering and cultivating, of course, is right mindfulness. And I actually gave a talk about that a couple days ago, so I don't have to go so much into that. But I hope you can see how it's a force in our lives that we water and that we cultivate. And um, it also, at some point, gets effortless. It's like mindfulness is there. It's how we interact with the world. And then right concentration is the last of the uh, samadhi path factors. And I loved what I found out. Listen to this. When the Buddha knew that the householder, Upali's mind was ready, soft, free from hindrances, joyful and bright, he expounded the teaching special to the Buddhas. So that was the manifestation of concentration that the Buddha was looking for, was a mind that was ready, a mind that was soft, free from hindrances, joyful and bright. 
That is what we're going for in our concentration practice. Softness, joyfulness, and brightness. How do we practice to cultivate ready, soft, joyful, and bright? Do we strive for jhana? Or do we just sit back and watch the flow? Be receptive to our focus of attention and just watch it unfold. This uh, alerts us to straining and expectation versus cultivating receptive readiness, a mind that's pliable. Pliability, that's actually one of the 52 mental factors. I love that pliability. You you know how you can tell if your mind is pliable? Is if you make a resolve and it happens. I've seen that, it's so interesting. If your mind is really pliable, it does what you ask it to do. And that's what we're looking for with concentration. The mind gets soft and pliable and free from greed, hatred, and delusion or free from doubt and restlessness and sleepiness and free from aversion and greed. So those are the eight path factors, the eight forces in three categories of sila samadipanya that we are cultivating being on intensive practice. And, you know, as Ajahn Chah says, it's those eight path factors and defilements battling it out. That's what's happening in this body and mind. And all we can, you know, do is just to have an open heart and use our mindfulness to watch as, you know, as well as we can. One analogy is the cultivation of the garden, right? We are watering the seeds and putting manure. You can say that all of those negative, that's one good analogy of all that negativity, it's the manure for our path factors, right? When we can see it for what it is, it can become, uh, it can become nutriment for the strengthening of our path factors. Sila Samadhi Panya. Maga, Maga. And then what happens is, I love it, transcendental dependent origination. That's actually thought to be one of the aspects of of a super mundane right view is to really understand how causes and conditions happen. And, uh, you know, I don't want this to get real conceptual with you, but I'm going to talk about the lawful progression. This happens lawfully. Is, you know, ignorance, avijja, is the source of a lot of suffering. And uh, in dependent origination, contact. And that's why Vedana or feeling tone is so important because it just drags us around by the nose. Is something pleasant? Is it? If it's pleasant, we chase after it. If it's unpleasant, we run from it. If it is neutral, we just make stuff up. It uh, takes us away from this moment. 
And if we can catch that, if we can catch that and see what is arising as far as our intention, intention in the moment, then what happens is that suffering actually is the condition for wholesome conduct to arise. Wholesome conduct arises and faith arises and wise attention, which is, you know, mindfulness, wise attention arises. And from those conditions, the unlawful unfolding, gladness arises. And from gladness, joy arises. And then tranquility. And then happiness. And then a concentrated, uh, collected mind. And then knowledge and vision of the truth of the world arises. And then a turning away from conditioned existence arises. And dispassion arises. And equanimity arises. And then liberation arises. It's a lawful unfolding. I I had one uh, quote I wanted to end my talk with. It's actually a little bit long, but I think it's really beautiful, so I'm going to read it. It's one page. It's uh, Right View, Right Understanding. This is Gil Fransdahl. He says, The way I would like to present the notion of right understanding is through a simple statement. That uh, That statement is that the means of practice should reflect the goal. One aspect of the goal is to become peaceful, to attain a deep, abiding sense of peace, to be at peace in this world that we live in. For the means to reflect the goal means that there has to be peace in the practice. The practice itself should be peaceful. Peace, compassion, and joy are all the inner practice. And the way that the goal of practice is experienced for someone who attains the goal. Subjectively, it is marked by these inner qualities of peace, compassion, love, joy, and happiness. The practice should reflect that. That took me a long time to realize and understand. No matter what our practice might be, whether it's breath meditation, loving kindness, chanting, visualizations, right speech, or washing uh, dishes, working, or any activity, we want to make a practice or any activity that we want to make a practice, we have to ask if that practice is reflecting the goal. When Lou Richmond, who was a Zen teacher in the Bay Area, asked Suzuki Roshi, asked Suzuki Roshi, if I do this practice, will I get enlightened? Roshi said, if your practice is sincere, it is almost as good. So how we do our spiritual practice is as important, important as what we do in our, in our spiritual practice. How we do it is as important or more important than what we do. So let's sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.